We're going to look at the second chapter today uh, in a message that I have entitled Hope and Horror. Hope and Horror. So with that, let's take our hearts uh, to the Lord. Father, once again, we just say thank you for gathering us together, and Lord, uh, we pray, Lord, that now we're, that we're here physically, God, that we would uh, all be present and accounted for, uh, Lord, uh, spiritually, uh, intellectually, that our minds would be uh, on point and engaged and open to and ready to receive from you. God, we love you, and we just give this time to you. And we, Lord, whatever it is that you need to speak to us or work out in us, we just say, have your way today, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope and horror. Uh, both are headed down the prophetic pike for the people of this planet. The one that applies to you depends upon which side of the line that you take your stand. Ladies and gentlemen, let's understand one thing. That is that with God, there's no such thing as what one might call neutral ground. You're either for him or you're against him. You either trust him or you don't. You either love him or you don't. You're either saved or you're not. And at the end of the day, there are no shades of gray as it pertains to things like God's justice, uh, judgment, sin, and salvation. Uh, to those who have believed and received Jesus Christ, hope, uh, that is a concrete reality, the guaranteed certainty of coming good, the likes of which we're unable truly to comprehend, everlasting life everlasting love, a fullness, a peace, a joy, inexpressible, unspeakable, and full of glory, age-abiding, never-ending. Now, to those who have rebelled and rejected Jesus Christ, horror, the terror of the Lord, unrelenting torment, humiliation, condemnation. Listen, God's righteous judgment will be meted out. Now, it's God's heart that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is why there is such urgency placed upon you and me as ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore others on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, the prophecy that's in front of us here in Isaiah chapter 2 will carry on through chapter 5. Now, these first couple of prophecies are pointed at Jerusalem and Judah. Some of the prophecies found in Isaiah are pointed to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, others are aimed at surrounding nations. And still others are aimed at various individuals. But these first couple are pointed toward or speak to Jerusalem and Judah. Now look at verse 1. We read the word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, or Amos, or however you want to say uh, the word that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, what Isaiah is telling us here is that the way these things were revealed to him was by some kind of vision. Okay, these were things that he saw, he tells us. Now, in verse 2 he says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills 
and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, uh, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, if this sounds even somewhat vaguely uh, familiar to you, it's because not too long ago we studied the book of Micah, and these words virtually identically are repeated uh, in his prophecy in that passage as well. Now, if you remember right, I told you then that Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries, and therefore their ministries, their prophecies kind of crossed paths, so to speak. And so it doesn't surprise us that uh, God would bear witness in one uh, with what he said through the other, right? It would only serve to establish or emphasize, underscore, and confirm his word to the nation, But we note that the Lord says that what will happen, at least as it pertains to this passage, will come to pass, he says, in the latter days. Now, uh, to get straight to the point here, in this context, the term latter days is a reference to the time when Jesus Christ will rule and reign upon the earth. It is a time that we refer to as the millennial reign of or the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ uh, over and upon the earth. It'll be a time, the Bible speaks of, of unparalleled peace and prosperity, a time of righteousness and justice upon the earth. Fear will have no place, and violence will not be tolerated. Now, we'll see more descriptions of what this reign will look like as we make our way through the book of Isaiah. Uh, You should also, if you're interested, Psalm 72 speaks of it. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 5 and 6 mention it. Uh, Jesus refers to it in Luke chapter 19 verses 12 through 27. And guys, there are other passages, but I want you to be aware of the fact uh, as we kind of glance over this or go through this, I just want you to be aware of the fact that the millennial reign of Christ is not some obscure or uh, vaguely alluded to uh, implication found, you know, kind of obscurely through different passages. No, Scripture is clear on this matter. And if you'll allow me to digress for uh, just a moment here, there's a very interesting pattern that we find surfacing uh, throughout the Bible. And it's, it's like a six and one kind of a pattern that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. But for instance, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. God completed creation in six days. And on the seventh, he rested or there was rest. So you have the six and the one. Uh, God told his people in in the law that they were to work for six days. And the seventh, they were to rest. It was to be six and one. Even when uh, before that, in in the Exodus, when they were out in the wilderness wanderings and they were gathering manna, you remember he told them they were to gather up manna for six days. And on the sixth day, they were to to gather a double portion uh, so that on the Sabbath or the seventh day, they could rest. And he would see to it that the portion would be sustained so that it wouldn't rot. But they weren't to do any work. There was to be a six and one 
pattern. Uh, If they had a, a Hebrew servant, they could only have them work for them for six years. And on the seventh year, they were to go free. They could sow their land for six years. On the seventh year, they were to let it rest. And if you follow the biblical timeline, the earth has been under the curse of sin for approximately 6,000 years. And it's interesting that the Bible uh, speaks to a 1,000 year reign of Christ, whereby the Bible tells us righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So you have six and one. Now, has the Lord obligated himself to this pattern and to fulfill that pattern? No, but it's interesting and exciting to think through because, you know, when we read here of what will come to pass in what the phrase is in the latter days, uh, and then you do the math, well, that puts us right there on the cusp of it all, you see. And when we look at all that's happening in the world today in light of what the scriptures teach regarding what will happen and be happening in the world just prior to the return of Jesus Christ, guys, it is hard to draw any other conclusion outside of the fact that, listen, you and me, we can't be too far away. Now, now is not the time, right, to be lulled to sleep, uh, but to watch and be ready. Jesus told us that he would come at an hour and on a day in a time uh, that the world was not expecting. And so he said, just be ready. Watch and be ready. But what we're reading of here is the fact that when the Lord establishes his kingdom upon the earth, that Israel, this little nation that's about the size of New Jersey, to give you context, uh, Israel will be the leading superpower of the world, and that Jerusalem will be its capital, and that the temple proper will serve sort of like the capital building. He says, the mountain of the Lord's house. Now, the reference to mountains here would be to various nations, okay? You have the mountain of the Lord's house, which would be Israel, shall be established on the top of of the mountains and will be exalted above the hills. And all nations, that is every nation upon the earth, shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that is the nation of the Lord. Let us go to Israel, to the house of the God of Jacob, that is to the temple, and he with regard to the Messiah, that is Jesus, will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. Here's what he's saying. When Jesus reigns upon the earth, people will realize that God's revelation, that uh, God's word and its application is foundational for their lives. And people from all over the world uh, will be flowing into Israel, going to these, I don't know, we might call them Bible conferences today, but they'll just be radically incredible 
amazing going to the temple which will be rebuilt we know prophetically but they'll go and they'll want to listen to the the keynote speaker right (laughs) even Jesus himself it's like listen Paul you did great warming up or Peter we loved what you had to say but let's let's get to Jesus right or or whatever the case may be and Jesus himself will teach them the word and the ways of God ladies and gentlemen can you imagine that I mean, I'm telling you. And the thing is, they'll want to learn it and want to live by it. He says, he will teach us. In other words, they go, they say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us. They want to learn it. And then they say, and, and we shall walk in his paths. We want to live by it. We want to learn it so we can live it. Oh, what a word for us today. That we would learn it so we could live it. You see, not just learn it so that we know it and have it and are able to quote it and defend ourselves with it, but that we would learn it so we could live it. Now, in Isaiah's day, the Jews were abandoning God's word and God's ways in order to follow after the pagan gods and pagan uh, ways of worship around them. But Isaiah is saying, guys, it's like, wake up. The time is coming when the Gentile nations, those whom you're forsaking God for and going after, they're going to turn from those things, and they're going to follow the true and living God of Israel. But family, one of the things that I want you to pick up on and see here is the fact that it's always been in the heart of God to reach all of mankind with his word and the hope of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear for God so loved, notice, the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isaiah says here there's going to essentially be an endless stream of people coming in and going out of Israel and the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. They'll come in, they'll learn it, they'll go out, they'll share it, they'll take it with them and the word of God will be flowing forth uh, from Jerusalem. And then in verse 4 we read, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. And guys, this is why, this is one reason, I shouldn't just say why categorically, but it is one reason why there will be such prosperity over the earth when Jesus is ruling, and you guys understand how much war costs? Now listen, today, I am all for, I'm a huge fan and supporter of, of soldiers and veterans. I'm all for military and a military budget. Guys, if there aren't people in place with the ability to hold certain world leaders and various bad guys in check through military might, believe you me when I tell you terrible things would happen. Way more so uh, than that already are uh, today. But last year alone, the United States had a military budget of $157.7 billion. Uh, China had a military budget of $209 billion. 
Russia, $65 billion. You're talking in the upwards over $400 billion in just the three nations I've drawn. Now imagine all those resources being converted to agricultural development, education, parks, and playgrounds, you see. No need for nations to develop military forces. A nation will not lift up sword against nation. And it, guys, it's not that there won't be any kind of conflict uh, between nations or between individuals. It's that those conflicts will be dealt with decisively, justly, and swiftly. Things won't have a chance to escalate. You understand? He shall, we read here, judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Either Jesus himself personally or through those who reign with him upon the earth, namely the church that we we, uh, are aware of, will mediate and settle the issue. And guys, that'll be that. You see, now listen, when we speak of Jesus Christ ruling and reigning upon the earth in righteousness, and that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea, that, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that everyone on the earth will be righteous, okay? People who are born into this time will still need to believe on the redeeming work of Jesus upon the cross uh, to be saved. And no doubt countless will. Uh, but war, armed conflict, these kinds of things, they just simply will not be tolerated. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, if you want to write it down and read it later, it tells us that Jesus will break them with a rod of iron and they will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. You ever seen a clay pot just shatter? That's the way the Lord's going to handle it. This ain't going to be tolerated. You see, uh, there will simply be a zero tolerance atmosphere for violence and any kind of armed conflict. Nations will dwell in peace and the prince of peace will see to it. Amen. Now in verse five, Isaiah says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Do you, and by the way, you might underline that, man, highlight it, circle it, something. Maybe you remember verse 18 of chapter 1, and it begins, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. It's a verse stirring us to consider the way that we're going uh, versus the way that we need to go. Well, here, verse 5 kind of takes on that same hue, that same shade, that same kind of color as uh, Isaiah was writing these words, uh, Judah and Jerusalem was walking contrary to the Lord. They were venturing out in darkness, in pagan practices, in idolatry. But the day is coming, as we just read previously, when every nation will be streaming into Jerusalem, longing to know the word and the ways of God, wanting to lead lives pleasing to God, uh, being uh, blessed of God. And Isaiah is saying, guys, we have the light of the Lord with us right now. 
He says, oh, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You, you understand, you can kind of fall into the flow. He paints this glorious picture of the Messiah's reign and says, let's live in the light of that right now. Ladies and gentlemen, you remember if you were with us last week, the point of prophecy, right? Uh, if this is what will be, then how should we be living presently? Our lives should be ordered and in line with God's word. God gives us this revelation of what's coming, and that should serve as motivation, as inspiration to honor him right now, you see. The Apostle John said it like this. He said, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Guys, do you ever stop to think about what that means? That means that when Jesus comes, there will be those who are ashamed to stand before him because of the ways that they, they, they've led their lives. You see, understanding, having the light, knowing the word of God, knowing the way, and yet they've chosen to do that. And when the Lord comes, they'll be, they'll be ashamed. But he says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. If that's who he is, you see, then how should we be presently? He continues in chapter 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice, and everyone who has this Hope, ultimately, you see, in him, purifies himself presently just as he is pure. So the idea is knowing that we'll see and be with Jesus eternally should serve to purify us and motivate us to walk in his light presently. Does that make sense? Verse 5 brings people to a crossroad of sorts. You see, verses 2 through 4 are coming. We can choose to accept it or reject it. And to accept it is the hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. To reject it, uh, to follow not after the Lord, is to be found fighting against the Lord. Look at verse 6. He says, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures, and their land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols, and they worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself, therefore do not forgive them. So why wasn't Judah walking in the light of the Lord? Well, because they were following after the ways of the world, pagan practices. Uh, they were trusting in their vast 
prosperity, the might of their military. They were given over into idolatry. During the reign of King Ahaz, he appealed to the king of Assyria for military help, which he got. Then he felt compelled to go and visit the king of Assyria who was in Damascus. And when he went to Damascus, he took note of a particular um, uh, altar that he liked, the way it had been formed and fashioned and, and all. And so he sent to the priest Uriah back in Jerusalem, sent him the blueprints, if you will, and had him build an altar like the one he saw in Damascus that was uh, of the Assyrians. And he had the altar that Solomon made, moved, and he required the people to sacrifice on this new Assyrian-style altar. But guys, I want you to think about how absurd... Listen, why would the people of God, think this through, why would the people of God model their worship after the people of the world? You know, God has shown us in his word how to worship him, and believe you me, it is not compatible with the ways of the world. Uh, People like to think that we all worship the same God, you know, uh, we just take different paths to him. And you hear this, some worship through Eastern mysticism, uh, some transcendental meditation, others Buddhism or Hinduism, or like the Philistines, they go through mediums for spiritual advice, and they trust in the tarot cards, or they try to contact the dead. When God says, look, they are pleased with the children of foreigners, don't misunderstand what he's saying, that's not like an anti-immigrant kind of a phrase. God has nothing against other cultures or other customs. He's talking about falling into their worship of false gods and pagan practices. They're pleased to fall into the worship of the ways of the world. When he says their land is full of silver and gold, there's no end to their treasures. It's not an anti-wealth statement. Uh, God is not against wealth. He's not against Riches. In fact, he may entrust some with great wealth and great resources. But it's a rebuke to those who trust in riches rather than trust in the Lord. Guys, we talked about this last week, how that riches can have a tendency to make us relax our standards of godliness. We don't seek God like we used to, man. We got it good. Now, one might think that they would be humbled, like you're thinking, man, if I won the lottery or if I somehow struck it rich or whatever the case may be, you know, one would think, man, I would be humbled and honored and careful to seek the Lord and bless the Lord, uh, you know, who entrusts them with wealth and all. But too often, it's just the opposite. What happens is people drift away. They spend lavishly on themselves and don't put their resources to work for the kingdom of God. The same holds true for military might. You know, we had hoped to say, thank you, God, you know, for giving us the security of a strong military. But instead, people trust in their military strategies and their, 
weapons and nuclear capabilities to keep them safe. David said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You know, what a rebuke uh, to the mindset we can so easily fall into. I remember years and years ago, uh, my wife and I were at, uh, in St. Louis for, I, I don't know, it was right around the 4th of July. I don't know if we planned to be there for the, fe- there was like a big festival going on under the arch and everything. And they had this, this giant, I don't know, it was pretty state of the art at the time. I don't know what they're called, forgive me. But it's one of those planes, it flies, and then it, it turns its wings this way, you know what I mean? And then it just began to come down over the Mississippi River, and man, it was massive, and it sounded awesome, and it was just, you know, the whole just deafening, and then it turned its, uh, it, the, the body of the plane turned uh, up like this, and then it just shot up, and uh, I just thought, man, I'm going to sleep easier tonight, knowing that is, is out there, and you know, but, and then the Lord, like, wait, what are you trusting in? Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. That is, they'll put their trust in the military to keep them safe. And I'm not saying we shouldn't uh, be grateful for the military, but our hope, our trust is in the Lord. You see? He says their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. Now, guys, listen, I haven't specifically stated it, but I trust you're picking up on the parallels between what we're reading here and what's happening in our own country and in our own culture. Uh, Now, we're not given over so much to these little trinkets, uh, little carved trinkets, but we as a people serve and worship the work of our own hands just the same. Guys, we may not be into trinkets, uh, that is little idols, but what about gadgets, right? I mean, worshiping the things we've made and accomplished rather than worshiping the one who made us. Americans love to worship technology. You know, the most innovative vehicles, fame and fortune. But guys, again, it's not a rebuke against hard work and accomplishment. God is pleased with both. It's when we go from working hard for the glory of God to worshiping the work of our own hands. That's the problem. People bow down, and each man, he says, humbles himself. In other words, listen, ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not with worship. Um, That's not the problem people have. People know how to humble themselves. The problem that people have is in what or in whom they worship. Uh, People find it easy enough to bow down and exalt the object of their choosing, but they won't bow down and humble themselves before the Lord. Listen to these observations and see if it sounds like it could be written of the United States today. Material wealth, military might, Exalting achievements and accomplishments of man. You know, they probably attributed it all to the worship of their idols. You know, they must be doing things right. 
to, have, to be so fortunate, to have so, so much wealth and so much prosperity and all of the things. And it fed into their pride and self-confidence. Isaiah says, do not forgive them. Now, the word forgive here is the word nasa, N-A-S-A. And it is translated forgive in various places, but it's also translated regard, it's translated carry, it's the same exact word translated lifted up in verse 12. And so, you know, um, I don't know necessarily that Isaiah is saying that they're not, uh, that he just doesn't want God to ever forgive them. But to me, it seems more like he's saying, look, they have essentially, they have humiliated themselves. They have brought themselves low in worshiping idols. These pagans don't lift them up. In other words, they've, it's a, they've made their own bed, let them lie in it kind of a statement. They've sown to the wind, let them reap the whirlwind. Let them see the ramifications of their ways. Okay. Now, beginning in verse 10, uh, we're going to slingshot okay, back into the future. So the chapter starts with the glory of the Messiah's reign prophetically, what will come versus what was happening in the nation uh, currently, that is, as Isaiah was uh, writing. Now he returns to this latter-day scene and how God will cleanse the earth in judgment, which will usher in the forementioned Glory. Okay, so there will be a cleansing and then the glory. So verse 10, we read, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything uh, lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, upon all the hills that are lifted up, upon every high tower, every fortified wall, all the ships of Tarshish, all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of man shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. Hope and horror. He speaks in verse 10 of the terror of the Lord. He says, enter into the rock, hide in the dust, the pride of man shall be humbled and the arrogance of man bowed down. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. To which we say, even so, <laughs> come Lord Jesus. Now I want you to note in verse 12 the, the phrase, the day of the Lord. You're going to find this phrase threaded throughout your Bible. And what you need to know about it is that it does not refer to a specific day, okay? Uh, it refers to a general era in time, um, a time that will be the Lord's time. The idea is now is the time, now is the day of man, of man. Uh, but man's day will come to a close, and the Lord's day will dawn, okay? Now, today we say things like, well, man, you know, back in the day, or man, that was the day, right? 
or the day is coming, and, and we're, fer, we're referring to a particular time period. You know, back in the day, same type inference here. The phrase points to an era in time, not a 24-hour period. But it's coming, and it's going to come, I want you to notice, categorically. I tried to emphasize as we were reading upon every and all and all and all and every, everything proud and lofty, everything lifted up, and that's the word uh, Nassau again. Now, if you want to read of this day in greater detail, uh, you can read through Matthew 24, uh, Revelation chapters 6 through 19. But guys, what, what you need to pick up on here is that nothing is left out. There's no exceptions. Uh, every nation, every high tower, every fortified wall, that is, military, it doesn't matter. You see, every accomplishment in which man prides himself, every ship, the word sloop, S-L-O-O-P, just speaks of pleasant imagery, every pleasant thing, everything man delights himself in, all the art, all the things, you know, all of his accomplishments, every arrogant achievement will be brought to nothing. Uh, Verse 17, again, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. He says it twice. And in verse 19, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And in that day, a man will cast his, uh, cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and the bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Guys, people will be fleeing into caves into, you know, the Bible speaks how the, the heavens will be rolled back like a scroll and people will hit the panic button. You understand? That's what he's saying. People will be fleeing into caves, into bomb shelters. You see, whatever the case may be, throwing everything they considered valuable away. It's only slowing me down. Now, I'll read it to you. It's in Revelation chapter 6. You can turn there if you like. I'm just going to read it real quick here. And it's uh, just so you can see uh, here in uh, Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, John writes, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake. Remember the, the shaking mightily, right? And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Think nuclear kind of blast. And the kings of the earth, great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks, the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, that is cover over us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Think about that. Now, look at verse 22 
of chapter 2. And we're going to close here if you want to make your way forward. He says, sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. For of what account is he? Wow. What a sobering reminder. God is here shining the light on the frailty of human life. What is he saying? He's saying, don't put your trust in man to save you. Do you remember what we just read? Let me go back there real quick. If I can find it here. Then the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, all of them. Here's the idea. There is none who can protect you from the wrath of God. Guys, kings, presidents, politicians, political parties. Here's what God wants us to understand about all that. They are all one breath away from death. Think about that. One missed breath. Think about it. Guys, it is such a strange sin, isn't it? That lures us to want to give more account, right? Of what account is he? Of what credit is he? Place greater trust in man who depend on something as small as their next breath. For life, rather than God who will shake the earth mightily and judge the earth in righteousness. Of what account, of what credit will man be to you in the day of the Lord? Sever yourself from man, tether yourself to the Lord. You see, to Jesus. Isaiah leaves us with a choice. Salvation, walking in the light of the Lord, or terrifying humiliation, condemnation, and destruction. There is no middle ground. And so let's not trust in man. Let's surrender ourselves fully making peace with God by trusting completely in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's take our hearts to the Lord. God, we thank you for the hope that you've provided in your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we place our trust. And I just pray, God, I pray for myself. I pray for my my family here, God, you keep us awake, watchful and ready for his appearing. And I pray that you'd help us to stay busy about your work, not being lulled to sleep, not becoming lethargic or apathetic, uh, but that we would stay about your business until you're ready to bring us home one way or the other that you be glorified in our lives. All right then, Lord, we just thank you for assembling us here today and giving us the, the ready reminder 
of what's coming down the pike, so to speak, and knowing what's coming. Lord, eventually or ultimately, I pray that you would quicken us to batten down the hatches, Lord, to to reel in the ungodly ways and to honor you presently. That we would be a people who respond to the conviction of your spirit. That we might honor you, Lord, day in and day out. And we thank you for each breath. Lord, we're reminded of the frailty of our own lives. And we look to you for life. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.